All right, back on the Young Turks. Uh, everybody remember, top of the show uh, tomorrow uh, at 6 p.m. Eastern, a dramatic announcement for uh, Just Democrats. New candidate coming out uh, against a Democratic incumbent. So justice is coming uh, and Washington is not going to be happy about it, but you guys will be. <laughs> so don't miss uh, tomorrow's show. Also Tom Hartman in the third hour of uh, tomorrow's program, wonderful progressive uh, that I've learned a lot from. All right, joining me now is Matt McGorry. And Matt um, is in How to Get Away with Murder, season six is coming out. Season six is about to start filming, yeah. Yep. Uh, Orange is the New Black, uh, you, you were on that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and apparently people are very upset that you left some sort of character that you should not have left. Yes, it's a, it's a lasting legacy in my life. Uh, <laughs> 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 like one tweet after another. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, every, every now and then in person people tell me and you know, and then it's a great opportunity to plug the show that I'm on now. Usually I parlay it into, oh, well that's because, have you seen How to Get with Murder? So, okay, like, yeah, I, I like that. Have you ever done a show that did not involve criminality? Mm. <laughs> to be honest, I don't know, because I was thinking actually, even the sort of what they call co star roles, which are the five line roles, actually, a lot of times I was playing police. I played some EMTs. So I guess in some in some way you could say that uh, perhaps that's the case. Well, wow, you got a range. You also do EMTs. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, I don't know how you uh, you got typecast like that, which mm -hmm. we'll come to in a second. Right. But maybe because it happens in your real life, because mm -hmm. you got arrested uh, with uh, Black Lives Matter. Right? Yeah, with a group called NYC. Shut it. I shut it down. NYC. Yeah, which is a Black Lives Matter group in in New York. Um, that does some really good work and are heavily surveilled by the police. Actually, there was just um, recently there was uh, reports that came out through the through a Freedom of Information Act that you know they had people embedded in the organization. Uh, one of the people uh, who's also a cop watcher just sued uh, the NYPD for a million dollars because they arrested him and he wears body cam and they didn't know it was recording audio and on camera. Or on the audio, they were talking about how they were trying to pin false charges on him too. So they do a lot of work and also uh, get a lot of repression from the NYPD too. It's it's kind of amazing to see that there's oftentimes more NYPD than there are protesters at those groups. No, it is amazing because you know the Bill O'Reilly called Black Lives Matter terrorists, mm -hmm. and then the cops are constantly tracking people doing freedom of speech, mm -hmm. their core First Amendment rights, um, and and. Uh, looking to get grievances addressed by the government. I mean, he couldn't get more American than what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And and they decided they're gonna surveil them, track them as if they're criminals. They New York City also did that with Muslims for mm -hmm. years upon absolutely. years, went into their houses of worship, to colleges, etc. found absolutely nothing mm -hmm. in all that time. Mm -hmm. Then meanwhile, at the federal level, they shut down the part of the Department of Homeland Security tracking right-wing extremists. Yeah. Who are actually murdering people all across the country? Exactly, it's amazing. Yeah. So in that particular case, were you doing civil disobedience, or what? Why did they arrest you? Um, yeah, I was. I was in the in the street, and they have. So they come out now, and they have uh, they have lawyers also who can arrest people, and they have the, they have the whole the whole crew as well. Um, and they gave me one countdown, but it was a very quick three, two, one, and then it was basically over. But as you can see, there's no shortage of. Of police officers there um, that basically find out where the group is going to protest on a weekly basis and and come out beforehand as well. Right. So we share that too. Um, you know, at this point, it's almost like a badge of honor. In the old days, like if you got arrested, it was like, whoa, oh my <laughs> God, that's going to carry stay with you the rest mm -hmm. of your life. But um, I, we did civil disobedience uh, about money and politics mm. uh, in Democracy Spring. Got mm. arrested there. 
and uh, look, when the government becomes tyrannical, uh, we're doing it the right way. We're not acting up violently. We're doing civil disobedience. We're drawing attention to the things that they are doing wrong. Uh, but it is a topsy turvy world when the people who are actually dangerous are not investigated, and people who are saying, "Hey, could you please not shoot unarmed civilians?" Right. Are the ones that are being investigated, right? Exactly, and this obviously goes perfectly in line with the history of this country as well. Unfortunately, right? You know, when we look at even sort of the origins of policing in this country being uh, slave catchers um, initially, and also strike breakers and union breakers, um, it makes perfect sense that things are things are going the way they are now, right? You know, the, the idea that the criminal justice system is not broken; it's actually uh, behaving exactly the way that was intended in the first place, um, which I think is a different framing um, that I think. Uh, paves the conversation in a different way, right? And so it's it's this constant, right, like fear or this constant struggle of, you know, even from the sort of the founding documents, you know, where all men are created equal, we know is just a bold-faced lie and and no one who ever wrote that ever actually believed that. Um, so it's this constant struggle, right, of, of just like trying to actually make us live up to our professed values. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm glad that they did the lie so that we could one day live up to it, mm. right? Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but it's important to point out that it was never quite accurate in the first place. Right. And history and context matter. Second Amendment, uh, a huge part of the reason for that being included in the Constitution was because uh, they wanted militias uh, in the South that were slave patrols. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted them to be able to be armed mm-hmm. To catch the slaves right. uh, while they were on their slave patrols. Right. So um, the militias in the North were different, but mm-hmm. it was mainly the South that drove the Second Amendment. Yeah. So it's important to know that context. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have any right to a gun. Right. But uh, but it's an interesting context to know, and that's why it talks about a well-regulated militia being necessary for the protection right. of the people. Right. Etc. Uh, so now. You do a lot of progressive causes, but I want to come back to that. I want to find out why. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, and and how you got into acting, etc. Mm-hmm. So first, where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in, in New York City in uh, in Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's uh, that was a kind of an extraordinary experience um, for me, where you know being in this place with you know as far as uh, the U.S. goes, like quite progressive politics, particularly in Chelsea, which was a sort of um, you know, uh, when I was growing up, a center for a lot of uh, LGBTQ folks. Um, it was uh, yep. um, highly populated in that way. Um, so I think just even through osmosis, I was I was able to get some of the values, even if I didn't necessarily have a political lens on them for a long time, um, that are so important to me today. You know, um, yeah, culture yeah. matters. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. So, and it, conservatives watching this are like, yeah, you see that he got corrupted because he lived in that area, right, etc. Right. Yeah, he got corrupted into being a decent human being, right? Right. right. <laughs> and having empathy for others, uh, and and all those things. And that, but and so I don't know if this had anything to do with your own personal story, but the right wing always refers to like liberal Hollywood. Mm. And and my thought is, yeah, they you call them liberal because the good guys win at the end. Mm, <laughs> right? mm, mm, mm. The ones that, that work together with other people, empathize with other people, right. the rebel alliance, uh, like the, the empire doesn't win at the end. And right. I, maybe that's why the Dick Cheney's of the world think, oh, that's unacceptable liberal Hollywood. Right, right. Yeah, no, it, it is fascinating. It's also interesting to see how people can see themselves in all sorts of stories too, right? Like I'm sure that, you know, the Dick Cheney might also see himself as the Luke Skywalker of that story, right? And then Darth, and Darth is like big government. You know, like it's it's really interesting to see how that 
how that can happen. Um, you know, and, and also just even, you know, the idea of like being in Hollywood the same way as being, you know, growing up in, in Chelsea, New York city is also not alone enough to be the thing that sort of propels us into action and to a deeper sort of understanding of our place in the world. And that's been actually pretty huge for me too, because, you know, actually after, um, after, uh, being arrested in New York, I wrote an article, um, called the tale of two cities, making black lives matter in the liberal bubble. You know, this idea where, um, Oftentimes I feel like as particularly as white liberals, we get this idea that like, well, we're not like, you know, we're not like the South. So, you know, thank, thank God, you know, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the work is, is not done, right? You know, um, unarmed black people and black folks in general and people of color are still being killed by police in, in New York City, right? There was just a recent, um, you know, whatever it was a year or two ago that, you know, there's almost a, a million false stops by the NYPD they found. So these are all, you know, legacies of racism. And um, that's a big sort of proponent of mine in in what I talk about is like, you know, just being better than someone who's awful doesn't make us good, right? You know, the yeah. idea is not like this binary of like, oh, I'm a good man. So, you know, like wiping away my responsibility or I'm a good white person because, you know, I don't hate people of color. Um, that's actually not any, doing anything necessarily to to change the world. And like we were talking about before, you know, like there's so many, uh, you know, white liberal folks or liberal men who we profess these values of, you know, equality and all these things. But are we actually taking the steps to make sure that our own lives reflect those values, right? And so it's even analogous to sort of the Constitution in that sense too, mm-hmm. right? Like we're saying, I always thought that I believed in equality. Um, and it wasn't until five and a half years ago that I realized that I had pretty little idea of what that meant actually in my own life. Hmm, that's really interesting too. Um, yeah, I was talking to uh, recently talking to an older African American gentleman, and he said actually some of the most vicious racists when he was growing up were in Boston and New York, mm-hmm. and so uh, it, of course it was pervasive, right? Right, and and continues to be in a lot of ways. I mean, look at what's happened to Black Lives Matter. In the middle of New York City, one of the exactly. most so-called liberal places there is. So, okay, you're growing up in Chelsea. How'd you get into acting? Uh, you know, I've <clears throat> I was interested in it for a long for a long time. I was a magician uh, growing up. Oh, really? Yeah. Can you still do magic? <laughs> um, not really. I have like one. So or two. that means yes. That right. Means yes. Exactly. It does. <laughs> Occasionally, one or two up my sleeve. Yeah. Um, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but I started doing you know, magic because so I started doing. Uh, you know, children's birthday parties when I was a child, and I did street magic as a kid, which was really um, like literally in down. You go to New York yep, city streets on and- the corner of Twenty Third and Eighth. Um, I think there's a hotel there there now, but I used to I would go out in the corner and I had this magic box that I would wheel out, and it opens up and it becomes like a table, and inside you have all your tricks and stuff. Um, and so that you know made me I think realize that like wanting to perform was was kind of the most important thing to me. And then I went to perform arts camp, a place called Bucks Rock. And then I went to LaGuardia High School, which is known as the fame school. Um, and then from there, I went to college for theater and studied with a, um, an amazing teacher in New York named Bob Krakauer and 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 just kind of kept building from there, really. you know. Um, but it's been something I've been passionate about for, for a very long time. See, that's funny, because I was gonna ask you, like when you, you're growing up, I grew up in a suburb. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we were kids, we went out and played uh, kickball, mm-hmm. wiffle ball, right. Etc. Did you get a chance to do that in the city, or that's why you had to do magic in the streets? <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, I, I've never been a huge sports person. Um, there was an after-school program that I did some sports at occasionally. I went to a sports camp actually for the first couple of years. I went to camp. It was an all-boys sports camp, and I thought that I liked it until my parents showed me sort of the promo video for the co-ed like arts camp, and I was like, actually, this is 
way more my speed. Uh, so I got to do <laughs> dance shows and really kind of uh, branch out in those ways. But New York, obviously, yeah, I mean, there's certain, I, I think, different sort of uh, ways of being depending on where you are, where you where you grew up, the financial privilege you have. I mean, there's so much access there in a way where, you know, the best magic store in the country when I decided to do magic was like three blocks from where I lived, you know, and then LaGuardia High School was was not far. And, um, and I got to have a theater subscription because my parents growing up you know, uh, where I got to see, you know, off-Broadway shows, you know, as a kid. So it was huge and very formative for me. Yeah, so that's also part of the culture that you grew up in, right? right? That valued that. So uh, when you were doing street magic, did you ever get robbed? I did not. No, I did not actually. Um, uh-huh. I do remember actually I tried to get a, a police officer to shackle me with these shackles that I had that uh, he would not do it. But uh, uh-huh. I remember at the time it seemed like a good idea. Yeah. Well, eventually you did get shackled. Right. That is true. That is true. My <laughs> wish came true. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Hey, in America, anything is possible. That's right. That's right. Uh, and they still talk bad about this country. Right. Uh, so, uh, how'd you get your first break in acting? Um, well, I guess my first break probably would be Orange. I mean, I was I was pounding the pavement pretty hard um, in some few in a, for a couple of years, um, and you know, I had just gotten rid of gotten rid of my agent at the time um, and I kind of didn't really have any representation in the or- the audition for Orange is a New Black came around uh, sort of randomly and they were looking for unknowns it was before Netflix had ever come out with any original content so part of me was like you know the description was a possibly recurring role with partial nudity perhaps and mm-hmm. on Netflix on like the streaming thing I was like is this a web series what what am I what is this um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I went in and I was I was prepared. I had been, you know, I wasn't You've been partially nude many times before. Right, so exactly. In my own life, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I shower partially nude. So, <laughs> um, and I uh, I had the ex- yeah. I mean, I, I was I was so practiced also at that point because I knew that I couldn't. I had to study really hard because I knew that I wasn't getting enough auditions to get good at auditioning by auditioning. Right, so mm-hmm. you know, I had to be ready for any opportunity that came, and thankfully, I was really ready. Um, and they were looking. Jen Houston's casting office was looking for um, people who were not names, um, and I booked the role and didn't know if I was going to be in one episode or thirteen. And um, obviously, we didn't know till it came out that it was just like you know, my life pretty much changed within a day. And people are like, "I've seen this entire show," you know, walking down the street, um, which is just was a totally different way of doing things, which yeah. is now the norm. Yeah. So. Um- Either way, though, it was a big role, and you hadn't gotten a big role before. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you remember when you got the call for it? Were you like, yes, all that street magic paid off? Right. Well, you know, to be honest, again, I didn't know what it was going to be. No one knew uh-huh. what Netflix was going to be, right? It's uh-huh. like, for all I knew, it was a web series. Um, uh-huh. And and the role was a possibly recurring, which literally meant that it could be two roles or, or sorry, two episodes or 13 episodes. So I had no idea. So I was excited to book anything at that point, you know, and it was a, Again, a possibly recurring co-star, which are these like five-line roles, but it ended up growing into something. Um, I will say it is interesting that you know I was a personal trainer for many years, and uh, I was actually with the same client um, when I got the call about Orange is the New Black as when I got the call about How to Get with Murder, which was pretty interesting. Huh. Oh well, you should hang out with that guy more. I know, I know, I really <laughs> should. <laughs> so, um, so when you see, I remember when. Uh, Orange is the New Black came out on Netflix. It was a big deal. It was a giant deal. Yeah. Right? Because now, you know, you guys already sh- had already shot it, but but like at that point, Netflix is hot. Yeah. And this, after House of Cards, this is the second big yeah. Netflix show and everybody's watching mm-hmm. it. So is that when it dawned on you? Like, oh my God, holy cow, this thing's going to be giant. 
Yeah. I mean, once it, you know, again, that's that, that interesting structure of the, the sort of every, every episode coming out of once was like the next day I was like, you know, going to a copy center to make, to, to print some things, I think for acting class probably. And some woman walked by and I think it was the first time I remember being recognized, walked by the window and was like, and then came in and was like, I just watched like six episodes of the show last night. And I was like, oh, wow. And it really did change in an instant. I remember just literally looking at my Twitter and, and social media following, just like continuing to sort of go up, um, you know, very sort of steadily at that time. It, it really did change very drastically and very quickly. See, that's trippy because I don't often hear that story because yeah. a lot of the actors that I, I talk to, it's a lot more gradual yeah. and, and they work up to it, etc. But boom, overnight. So was it like, you know, in the movie Social Network, the mm -hmm. Facebook has that scene where the numbers start piling right, up, right. right? And they're all like, oh, and looking <laughs> yeah. at it, right? So did you have a moment, like, she recognized you. That's the first time you've ever been recognized. Yeah. Your Twitter's blowing up. Yeah. Did you go home at some point and just like watch all this stuff happening at once and be like, oh my God, what happened to me? I did. And in some ways, I think it can actually be somewhat uh, of a trap in, an, in a not great way too, because you... I think, you know, the same things about social media that make us all vulnerable to being, you know, stuck with our faces in the phone forever is hyper, you know, especially is like is magnified in that situation, particularly take someone who I think has has worked to change my history of needing external validation um, for things. It, it becomes this like very powerful drug, you know, so I would just constantly be like refreshing and stuff. And over the over the course of, you know, however, seven years since that happened, I've, I've created some good and healthy boundaries for that to exist in a way that I don't feel like I rely on that. But um, definitely in the beginning, it's it can be, you know, it just, it, it I mean, literally, it, you know, it affects your brain, the chemicals in your brain in a way that's yeah. just um, kind of unlike anything else. You know? If I went looking for validation on Twitter, uh, Tyrion Lannister's line would uh, ring through my head. You've come to the wrong place. <laughs> that's right. And once you're political, you know, that's, I mean, it all changed at that point. That's right. <laughs> you know. Okay, speaking of politics, uh, you're very active in, actively involved, not just in Black Lives Matter, but uh, talk to me about Inspire Justice. Yeah, so Inspire Justice is a company um, that I just launched with uh, my mentor um, and partner. Um, her name is J. Love Calderon. We launched it just a few months ago, and it's been building. Um, but basically, the, the idea is we we have some of the most incredible grassroots activists in the country, and we and we pair them as we're sort of training uh, training celebrities or influencers for whatever word you want to use, people in the entertainment industry, in order to be the leaders that we need them to be. So we do something that's really unique in in the sense of um, we do both the social impact empowerment coaching, um, where we give political education, we help people deepen their understanding of of you know politics and and the world around them, and we're also doing this empowerment coaching. Which has been pretty remarkable, and I was being coached by J Love in that process for a long time. And, and even though I'd been political, highly political for four years, it really for me shifted enormously um, the way that I was, you know, in a position of leadership and engaging in politics. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these sort of human elements of perfectionism and and shame and scarcity and all this stuff actually really can get in the way of the politics and and of enacting them in the in the in the uh, most important way that we need to do it, um, and so that's been that's been actually just huge to see. Like when you're able to shift that sort of under, underlying fundamental human uh, stuff, how much more easily people are willing to step into their power and to be controversial because they feel more rooted in in all of that. Um, and Hollywood, you know, it's it's a very toxic industry, you know, and and to be able to survive in that and to be in integrity with 
my politics um, is very challenging at times. Um, but she, because she had, you know, the experience as a lifelong anti-racist organizer and empowerment coach was able to help me find sort of the nuance and the complexity and embrace that in a way that allowed me to actually um, continue to build my platform, which is important because that's obviously one of the strong points of how I can leverage my activism. And then the other huge part of that is we're actually doing trainings at um, for productions too. So for, for TV shows as well to how, to how to shift culture to a place where we can all thrive, which is obviously something that is very needed every place, including in Hollywood. So the reason that while a lot of people hide their politics mm. in Hollywood, even though there's that uh, nonsense about how it's liberal Hollywood, mm-hmm. the one guy who came out of Hollywood and Politics was Ronald Reagan. I don't mm. think he was too liberal, right? Right, right. right. Uh, so it is because they're worried they can't get another job because people will say, "Oh, well, you're going to turn off a certain percentage of the population, and we don't want that, and that makes you less marketable." Right. How prevalent is that still today? Um, I think it depends on what you're talking about and the extent to what you're talking, the extent to which you're talking about it. You know, um, the idea of talking about, I think, prison abolition uh, is different than the idea of just of saying. Black Lives Matter or don't kill unarmed black people, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you know, talking about capitalism is very different than just, you know, everyone is pretty comfortable talking about how terrible they think that our current president is. Um, but when he pushes to that other level and then even looking through the lens of storytelling, you know, how are we living up to these um, to our to our morals in this way? You know, like I think a lot of our view of policing actually comes from the entertainment industry, right, where it's these ideas of like that like individual intentions, for example, of police officers is the most important thing. Or we don't see the, you know, we don't see the show, you know, the the police crime show of the week where, where the hero of the show is like ticketing people that are unhoused, right? Um, but that's mostly what they do. They're not mostly chasing around bad guys. Um, and I think if we saw that, it would be different. So it, it is difficult in some ways to, to do that. And especially when you, you know, when I'm, I try to be extraordinarily intersectional in my, Activism, which means not just looking at white supremacy, but patriarchy, fat phobia, ableism, you know, all these different sort of lenses of oppression. Um, I believe that it is my job as as a person who's in some position of power in the industry to also have those conversations to push the narrative in a way um, where culture is actually, you know, the way we're shaping culture is is actually liberatory. Yeah, I'm amused by the idea of law and order being like, junk, junk, junk. And now you get a citation you can't possibly pay. Right. Man on the street. Exactly. Right. right. Like, I mean, how much of it is that? And we don't see that, right? So most people, particularly, you know, white folks and folks of, you know, class privilege, we just, we don't see it. So it kind of becomes invisibilized in that way. In fact, that leads us to the last thing I want to talk about, bold conversations. Mm. Uh, what, what What is that? Yeah, so bold conversations was a partnership with Color of Change. Um, and it came out this past holiday season. And really it was about encouraging white folks to talk to other white folks about racism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what can happen is, you know, we can so easily want to cut other people out of our life. And this is true, um, you know, a lot of the work that I do with men as well when we're engaging other men um, in conversations around sexism is once we become sort of politically or socially conscious in some way, it becomes easy to want to just cut everyone out and to, you know, to shame everyone and, and just kind of shove them away. But and I'm not saying you have to necessarily go try to find other people, but for the people especially that are in your life, these conversations do have to be had in a way that is, for example, calling in more than calling out, right? I know that, you know, attacking your entire worldview um, 
you know, with an, in a conversation with a white person about race is not going to likely be something that's going to allow that person to think about it differently, right? And if I'm being honest with myself, I can understand that despite growing up in, in liberal Chelsea, that I had internalized a lot of white supremacy and patriarchy and all these different systems. So if I can actually be vulnerable in those conversations, um, then I can actually say, you know what, I'm not making you wrong as a whole. I understand why you think that. I used to think this thing, and then I learned this that made me think differently. It gives permission to other people to change their thinking, which is it's just huge. And it's, it's in some ways the basis, the very foundation of grassroots organizing is one-on-one -on -one conversations and building with people. So um, it is incumbent on white folks to be bold and having those conversations with other white people and look for ways in rather than just cutting them out because it's more uncomfortable for us. See, you in a very sophisticated intellectual way uh, said what uh, uh, I do when I go, yeah, I used to be a dumbass Republican too. <laughs> 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 Which is true, mm. I used to be. Yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> so uh, we all evolve. In fact, you yeah. have a story about how you evolved to figure out what uh, that you were actually a feminist, which mm. you didn't know. Uh, same exact thing happened to me, mm -hmm. right? And I yeah. remember being called out uh, when I wrote a column about it back when I was mm. a Republican uh, at my college, mm. and they said, you know, Uger is actually a feminist and he doesn't know it. Right, right. And it turns out whoever wrote that, you were right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt Majori, everybody check out uh, the season six of How to Get Away with Murder. And also uh, all the things that he's working on that we just discussed, because they're all fantastic. Thank you. And helping to contribute to a better world. Thank you, Matt. Thank really you. appreciate, appreciate it. it. I appreciate it. All right, guys, uh, we are going to do one more thing for you guys. Last half hour, as you know, is for the members only. But we're going to cover Bernie Sanders' really important speech today where he explained what democratic socialism is. So if you're a member, you're going to get to see that live next after the break. For the rest of you, we are going to put it up later on YouTube and tyt.com, etc., because it's too important. We want to make sure everybody sees it. But members, come right back. And if you're not yet a member, tyt.com slash trial. You can try it out for a week free and see the Bernie Sanders speech right now. Okay, so we'll see you in a minute. <laughs>